Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, good morning again. Welcome to First Alliance Church at Home. My name is Pastor Andrew, and I'm delighted to be here with you. A special welcome to you uh, if you're part of our church community and joining here for church as you regularly do. And another welcome to you if you are just checking out church, you're, you're wondering what Christians believe about God and Jesus, and you're maybe looking for answers in your own life, in your own spiritual journey. We're so glad you're with us. We are diving back into our sermon series in the book of Joshua this morning. And so I welcome you to have a Bible open with you. That's kind of how we like to function as a church. Uh, I don't just want to be telling you stuff uh, that you're not able to see for yourself and and to get to learn this book, God's Word. So please have a Bible open. And we are going to be diving into Joshua chapter 1, verses 10 to 18. So that's Joshua chapter 1, verses 10 to 18, as we continue this series called Into the Unknown. So let's read that together, and then we'll pray, and we'll consider what God has to say to us. Joshua chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your supplies ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. The Lord your God is giving you rest and has granted you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan. But all your fighting men, fully armed, must cross over ahead of your brothers. You are to help your brothers until the Lord gives them rest as he has done for you and until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, east of the Jordan toward the sunrise. Then they answered Joshua, whatever you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses." Whoever rebels against you and your word and whatever you command them will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Living God, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us and help us in our weakness, in our inability to understand your word. Illumine our hearts and our minds in this time as we encounter you, would you remove the rust of sin and of the flesh and of worldliness and renew us to be your people who reflect your glory. We pray this, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen. As we journey into the unknown this morning, the bottom line of the message is this. Following God into the unknown 
is not something you can do on your own. Following God into the unknown is not something you can do on your own. This is one of the first lessons that Joshua learns as he begins to lead God's people, the the 12 tribes of Israel, as he leads them across the Jordan River into the land that God is giving them. God has told Joshua to get the people ready. We saw that last week. And now this week he moves to do that. Verses 10 and 11. It's this mustering of the troops. Get your supplies ready, guys. In three days, we're going in. But then you probably noticed in verse 12, there's three, well, two and a half tribes that are singled out specifically, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh. Joshua says this to them in verse 12, remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. What's happening there? Why do they get singled out of all the 12 tribes? You see, there's a backstory that we need to know to understand this passage and to really fully unpack uh, the notion of togetherness and unity in God's people that is being communicated here. So there's a story back from Numbers chapter 32. And I want to remind you of God's plan. Remember that the plan is for all of Israel to go and cross the Jordan River and enter into the promised land. Now, in Numbers 32 verse 1, it says this. The Reubenites, the Gadites, who had very large herds and flocks, they saw that the lands of Jazer and Gilead were suitable for livestock. So they came to Moses and Eliezer the priest and to the leaders of the community and said, if we have found favor in your eyes, let this land, that is the land east of the Jordan, be given to your servants as our possession. Do not make us cross the Jordan. You see, they set their lands to the east of the Jordan because it's good enough for their purposes, they think, right? They they haven't even seen Canaan yet, but they think, you know, this is good enough. Uh, Don't make us cross the Jordan. This is where we want to settle. And that wasn't the plan. The plan was for all of Israel to cross. And what happens next in Numbers 32 is Moses just lays into them. He says, should your fellow Israelites go to war while you sit here? Why do you discourage the Israelites from crossing over into the land the Lord has given them? And then get this, he calls them a brood of sinners, and then he accuses them of being just like their fathers who rebelled against God in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. It's really harsh. It's a really heated exchange. And what happens in the end is is Moses makes a deal with them. He allows them to take that land that they want east of the Jordan, but on this condition, that when the time comes for all of Israel to cross the Jordan, these two and a half tribes will answer the bell. They will send their armies with the rest of God's people. And so let's fast forward back to our text. Joshua is in his first leadership moment and and he has to tell these specific tribes, okay, it's ready, get ready to cross. And they've already built their cities. They've already settled down. They've already received their land. And there's this tension, are they gonna come? 
Will they answer the bell? Will they stand with us or are they gonna falter in their allegiance? And their answer is this shining moment for God's people in the Old Testament. You know, God's people don't always get it right in the Old Testament and same in the New Testament and same today in the church, but here they do. This moment shows us so much of God's intention for the church when the church is being the church. And there are some very important things that we wanna notice today about the church and I'll just list them now before we consider them. First, that the church is a community in unity. Second, that the church is a community of help and grace. And it's a community with a mission. And it's a community with a center. So first, the church is a community in unity. You know, uh, this goes way beyond our modern definitions of what it means to belong to a church. You know, being part of the church isn't just about going to a website and putting your email in and joining the club and then you're in. Um, what it means to belong to the church and for the church to be unified is that because of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection, an entirely new people have been created. And then when we believe in Jesus, we're united to Jesus and therefore we're united to his people, which in the New Testament is called his body. That's the account of scripture. And it goes way beyond the kind of togetherness that we often think about. And unity is crucial to what it means for us to be the church. It's crucial to our identity and to our ethics and how we live that identity out. And what the New Testament says is that unity doesn't just happen. That unity takes work. In Ephesians 4, it says, make every effort to keep or maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So unity is something that takes effort and it's gonna cost us effort and we see that in this text. Because in order for these tribes to maintain the unity of the people, it's gonna cost them something. And we're gonna consider that right now. First of all, what it costs them is the responsibility of integrity and accountability. Unity requires integrity and accountability. What Joshua is doing here is he is holding them accountable to what they said and agreed to with Moses in Numbers 32. And, and for Joshua, you know, I don't think that was easy. You know, sometimes I think we'd often rather let things run their course rather than stir up conflict or bring up kind of an awkward conversation. And, and sometimes we operate with the notion that if there's no conflict, then we must be unified. But let me just say this is wrong. In fact, conflict, when handled with maturity, when we confront people, when we hold them accountable, leads to a deeper unity and a true unity in Christ. And that's what's happening here. And when Joshua holds them accountable, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, they respond with integrity and honor. And this is huge. And of course, we would expect them to honor their word, but that's not guaranteed. God's people don't always follow through. And in our text, there's this small detail in verse 14 that I want you to notice, that Joshua, as he echoes the command of Moses from Deuteronomy 32, says this, that these two and a half tribes need to cross ahead 
of their fellow Israelites ahead. Isn't that the ultimate accountability? That, that they can't be in the back where they can just kind of peel off and go back to their land, but they're ahead. Everybody's eyes are on them. They're held accountable and they respond with integrity and without those key elements. The unity of God's people is broken. And unity in our day and age, let's fast forward to 2020 in Toronto. Unity is deeply countercultural because individualism is arguably the governing principle of our time. Right? The law of the jungle, and especially the law of the Western urban jungle, is this look out for number one. And the primary question we are actually conditioned to ask ourselves each day through, through the media, through advertising, through everything that comes at us is this question. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? So you want me to live a certain way. You want me to do this and not do that. You want me to put someone else's needs above my own or use my time and resources for somebody else? Yeah, what's in it for me? And just pause and consider in your daily life, just how many of your decisions are governed by that question? What's in it for me? You see, unity challenges our what's in it for me culture. And as disciples of Jesus, as we live and breathe the air in Toronto in 2020, we actually need to realize that our culture is also trying to disciple us. And it's so subtle. It's so easy for us to, to allow our culture to disciple us and then to approach our relationship with God and spirituality and the church from that lens of what's in it for me. And then church is made into a show. It's a commodity to be consumed rather than a community to belong to. And it's all the more dangerous. Right now, we're in a pandemic where every church is projecting their services online. And you can go to five different churches in the same morning from the comfort of your couch. Oh my goodness. And what these tribes do of Reuben, Reuben Gad, and Manasseh, and, and, and the way we're called to live as the church is deeply countercultural. The first question they're asking isn't what's in it for me, because they've already gotten theirs. They've already gotten their land. At this moment in our text, they, rege they reject that what's in it for me impulse. And they give themselves they give themselves to God and his people. They, they, they give themselves to sacrifice. They give their armies, their, their sons, their fathers to serve in the armies, to stand in the trenches, even though they already have their land and their rest. And you know, our culture often laughs at people who do that, who would sacrifice themselves for the sake of others. They're seen as losers or suckers. And so many people cannot understand why people would live that way. It's because we're living by a different principle. We're living by a different moral principle. We're living with a different center in our lives. Last week, I was talking to one of our parishioners, an older lady in our church, and I will not mention her name because if I do, I will be in big trouble with her but she's well on in years. She's in her 90s. And you know what she said to me as we were talking? She said, do you know the question I wake up every morning to ask myself? I said, no, what is it? 
She said, the, the question I ask myself each day is this, how can I glorify God? How can I glorify God with the precious moments and hours and days he's given to me? And they are limited, brothers and sisters, let me tell you. But with the gift of the time he's given me, how can I glorify God? She's not asking what's in it for me. She's asking how can I glorify God? Why can she do this? Because the grace of God has so gotten hold of her and, and shaped her and she gives herself to the Lord each day. She doesn't need to take her own. She doesn't need to grasp at security or wealth or popularity or image because in God, she has everything she needs. She's being cared for. She's being nourished. She's being provided for. He has given her that ultimate sense of security and eternal significance. And she's come across the wisdom and the wisdom has made its way into her that she has realized that this life is not about me. It's about God. It's about my creator and he's invited me into his eternal purpose. And so when you become a Christian, I mean, it doesn't happen all at once. This, this woman is a mature believer in Christ, but what God starts to do is he starts to shift the center of your life from yourself to him and you, we stop asking what's in it for me and we start asking, how can I glorify God? And let me tell you, this is important for you to reflect on because the question that you operate with on a daily basis will show you what is at the center of your life. Which is it for you? What's in it for me or how can I glorify God? In one case, you're at the center of your life. In the other case, how can I glorify God? God is at the center of your life. And let me tell you, it's only when God is at the center of your life that the unity of the church will become important to you. It is only when God is at the center of your life that the unity of the church will be something you work towards and strive towards because God first has to set us free from ourselves and our self-preoccupation. He's gotta set us free from what's in it for me and only then can we begin to love and serve others and truly act for their benefit. And I just wanna encourage you in this time of pandemic, I'm seeing so many of you, church family, you are caring for one another. You are demonstrating this desire for unity in the church and, and to reach out and to say, how can I glorify God by loving my neighbor? It's amazing to see because so many people are struggling right now. And a huge reason is for lack of companion and intimacy, companionship and intimacy, a lack of community and togetherness. And it's interesting that God is leading us into this passage this morning at a time where we have never been more isolated in our lives for many of us. And I just wanna encourage you, do not grow weary in doing good. Keep reaching out to one another. Ask God to lay on your heart people he wants you to reach out to in whatever way you can. Now, I wanna give a word to those of us who are struggling, who are feeling more isolated than ever, and, and maybe you're struggling in silence, and, and sometimes we do that because we don't wanna be a bother or a burden to other people. Um, you don't want to um, you know, be a weight or, or a, a, a wet towel, or, or maybe you feel that there would be shame in reaching out because that would mean being vulnerable. And that's scary, and that's painful. 
Let me gently say to you, one of the evil one's greatest strategies is to isolate us and convince us we're alone. One of the evil one's greatest strategies is to isolate us and convince us that we're alone. There's a moment in the second movie of The Lord of the Rings where the people of Rohan are besieged by Saruman's army and it looks like a losing battle. They're so vastly outnumbered and they're underprepared and Theoden, their king, is holding council with a bunch of people and Aragorn is there and Aragorn's telling him, send riders, call out to for aid, send word to Gondor, who was their ally and neighbor. They'll come. And then the frame shifts to King Theoden. And you can tell he's under this cloud of despair. And he says with this sullen expression on his face, where was Gondor when we were attacked, when our lands were under threat? Where was Gondor when the West Fold fell? Where was Gondor when our enemies closed in around us? Where was Gondor? And then he says, no, my Lord Aragorn, we are alone. And it's in those moments where we believe the lie that we're alone, that we withdraw and we don't call out for help that the enemy gains a victory in our lives. He removes you one step further, whether that's a small step or a large step, from the very community that will embrace you and show you help and show you God's grace. And the lie comes to us. Nobody understands what you're going through. You're the only one struggling with sexual brokenness. You're the only one battling this addiction. You're the only one who feels just so cripplingly lonely in this time. I mean, which of us in our darkest moments hasn't had those thoughts? And let me just say, these thoughts are the influence of the evil one. It's not the voice of God in your life that seeks to isolate you from the church. God always works to draw us into community, not away from it, in the assurance of his grace and forgiveness. Don't buy the lie. Reach out. Let us know. And if not us as the church, let somebody safe know what you're facing. Ask for help. Be vulnerable. Be weak and see how God works in that vulnerability to show you his grace and power. You cannot journey into the unknown on your own. You cannot journey into the unknown on your own. Secondly, the church is a community of help and grace. Joshua steps up to lead. He gives his call in a bit of a delicate situation with these tribes that they're wondering, are they really with us? And they respond with unity and integrity and their response is one of help. And their response is one of grace. And so the church too is to be a community of help and grace. Look at verses 14 and 15. Uh, the command to them was, you are to help your brothers you are to help your brothers until the Lord gives them rest. They're called to help, not to hinder. Other people's journey into the land of God's promise. And this is crucial for us as the church. One image I love to talk about is that the church is a hospital for the wounded, not a museum for the saints. 
It's a hospital for the wounded, not a museum for the saints. It's a place of welcome and transformation and healing and renewal where people can come as they are and encounter God and know that he's not going to leave them as they are. He's not going to leave you and I as we are. He's going to change us as we worship him and follow him in the way of Jesus. And it's a place of grace. That's what God is leading us into as a church, to continue to become a community of grace, finding new ways to open our door to the community, to those in need, and to ask the questions, how can we help here? How can we embody the love and grace of God here and now? That's what we're journeying into. That's what Pastor Tim and I are wanting to lead us into. Now, I want to take a moment because you might have noticed, as we did last week, that this is a leadership moment. And so let's look at the leader, Joshua, here. This passage gives such an incredible picture of God's people as this community of grace to their leaders. Put yourselves in Joshua's shoes again, right? Young leader, untested. He's got to hold these tribes accountable. And they don't just honor their commitment. They bless Joshua. Look at verses 16 and 17. Then they answered Joshua, whatever you have commanded us, we will do. And whatever, wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Imagine as a leader, having those words spoken to you, just feeling the grace of God uh, strengthen you as your people get behind you. It's this beautiful manifestation of what the people look like, the people of God, when it, it is a community of grace. I was listening to a podcast this week where an older pastor, Paul Tripp, he was being interviewed about what we're seeing today in the church and in leadership in the church of, of so many leaders leaving ministry, whether it's because of uh, burnout or, or moral failure or even giving up the faith entirely. And Paul Tripp told the story of when he was a young pastor and in his first years in ministry, he just got completely beaten up. And he came to the point where he was done. He had uh, found a teaching job that he was going to take, and he was going to leave pastoral ministry. And on the Sunday that he announced his resignation to his church, he was so beaten up, he never thought he would experience what he experienced as a young pastor. And as he was walking out of the church that Sunday, an old man in the congregation pulled him aside and said, can I, can I speak to you? So he said, yeah. And so the old man spoke, and he said, look, we know that you're immature. <laughs> we know that you're immature. And then he said, where is a church going to get mature pastors? if immature pastors run. We haven't asked you to leave. We love you. And at that moment, Paul Tripp, who was just completely burned out, completely at the end of himself, broke down weeping. This man spoke the grace of God into his heart. 
And he went home that afternoon and he called his elders and he said, I know I'm a bit of an idiot, but can I unresign? You see, it's a powerful thing when God's people speak grace to their leaders. Like this man did for Paul Tripp and like the Israelites did for Joshua in our passage to say, we're with you. And you know, Paul was then asked, what words would you have for pastors today who are under duress, who are just feeling the burden of leadership in a time like this? And he said this, he actually pointed pastors and leaders to to press into the community of grace. He says, God in his love surrounds a pastor with the body of Christ, which is a community of grace. God makes his invisible grace visible by sending people of grace to give grace to people who need grace. I love that. That God makes his invisible grace visible by sending people of grace to give grace to people who need grace. And we all need grace. Your leaders need grace. Tim and I need grace. And we thank you for times where you have shown us grace. Thank you for upholding us as we lead into the unknown. We are in this together. We're in this together. This leads to our next point. What are we in together? If we're in this together, what is the this that we're in? And yes, in a sense, Generally, we're in life together, right? We share that common bond of humanity, but it's even more than that for the church because in Christ, we're joined to one another as his church and this church community, the church of Jesus Christ has a mission. And what is that? Well, the text points us to it in verse 15. The tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh are called to help their brothers. It says until the Lord gives them rest. In other words, until the Lord gives their brothers and sisters rest, those who have not yet entered into the rest as he has done for you. And here's what rest means. Rest means you are done wandering. You're home. You're done moving around in the wilderness from place to place. You have been given a place of your own and you can live there. And and this word in the Hebrew has overtones of finality and victory and salvation. And God has done that for these tribes and their mission now is to help it happen for the rest of Israel. And that's what he's done for us. I mean, the rest in Joshua is pointing forward to the final rest that we have in Christ through his death and resurrection that we're reconciled to God and brought into God's eternal life. And so our mission is to help others enter into that rest because people are wandering. People in our culture are wandering in the wilderness of the world from place to place, trying to, to fulfill that, that hunger for rest and enoughness in their life in all kinds of different ways. And God is asking us to be the people of grace who invite them into his rest. We have a mission and the human heart, said St. Augustine, is restless until it finds its rest in God. And our mission is to be that people of grace that invite people into his rest. 
you, you see, this all comes back to God. It all comes back to what God is doing. The whole question of unity in the church and belonging to this kind of community, the center of the community is God. The center of the community is God revealed in Jesus Christ, indwelling his people by the Holy Spirit, connecting his people with the risen Lord. And we need to make this point about the center of the community because community itself can become an idol. I've seen groups so elevate the idea of community and they put so much weight and expectation of what this community was supposed to do for them and that expectation is always let down because there's this shadow side, right? This dark side of what happens when a bunch of sinful people come together. Leaders fail, people are mean, there's backbiting, party spirit, jockeying for power, just the normal stuff that happens in social groups. And what happens when faith is placed in the community is that the person's faith is totally destroyed when those expectations are shattered. Because you're expecting people to save you from loneliness and insignificance when ultimately only Jesus can. Making community the center is a recipe for disaster. True church community can only happen when Christ is the center. It's when we seek him first and live for him and allow him to live his life in us. That's gonna make the church a community in unity and a community of grace. You see, the unity of the church is not created by us, it's created by God. Jesus is the foundation. And by the way, in the church, if you're looking for you know, the perfect leader or the perfect person or you think it's you, uh, just a, a little news flash, there's only one perfect person in the church and it's Christ himself. We're all flawed. And so brothers and sisters, this morning, the way that we are shown to move forward into the unknown is we can't do it on our own. We're in this together. And we need to live with this deep and daily awareness of his grace that he has shown to us that we might be a people of grace who invite others into the rest of God. May we be such a people of grace. Holy Spirit, would you come and do this in us? Would you continue to reveal Christ to us and stir in us a response of integrity, a response of faithfulness, a response of grace, a response of love and thanksgiving and obedience. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.